This morning I'm going to ask you to make your way to the New Testament book of Matthew. The New Testament book of Matthew. We're going to be in the book of Matthew this morning. Specifically, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27. We're in Matthew chapter 27. And we want to uh, look at verses 50 through 56. We're going to read verses 50 through 56 this morning. Matthew chapter 27. Notice Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of saints which slept arose. And came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women were there, beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joses, and the mother of Zebedee's children. This morning we are going to conclude our series of messages on the murder of Jesus. And this morning we want to consider the murder of Jesus and specifically the impact of His murder. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning. Lord, we thank You for Your mercy and kindness. Lord, we uh, approach You, Lord, with... uh, hearts that are troubled, Lord, oftentimes over our own sin and our own inability to seemingly do that which we desire to do, and then we engage in, in, in that which we don't want to do. Lord, I pray that you'd help us as we battle the flesh here on this earth, that we, as we're studying on Wednesday night, that we would put off that we might put on. And Lord, as we look again today at this topic and the last of our series of sermons on this, the murder of Jesus. Lord, help us to understand that Jesus' murder was not uh, done without purpose uh, in the fact that you allowed it to take place. It was not done just by the wicked will of men. Lord, there were things that you accomplished as a result of it, and yes, the murder of Jesus had an impact. And I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to focus our hearts and our minds on you today with you and Lord that you would help us to pay attention to your word and that as a result of studying the impact of Jesus's murder that we might be drawn closer to you Lord we thank you for your mercy and kindness it's in Jesus's name we pray amen the murder of Jesus specifically the impact of his murder now Jesus's murder no doubt made an immense immediate impact Now, we've spent the last several months considering the murder of Jesus. Our study covered three different parts of Jesus' murder. His illegal arrest, His illegitimate trial, and last week we concluded looking at His inhumane punishment. I thought it was fitting for us to present one final sermon to close out our thoughts on the murder of Jesus. And so that's what we endeavor to do today, this morning. Jesus' murder was not beyond God's control. In fact, it was entirely permitted of God 
and fit perfectly within God's purpose. After all, remember that Jesus is described as the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Now, this morning we're talking not just about the impact of Jesus' death, but the impact of His murder. And I would submit to you that those are two entirely different topics. Of course, each topic encompasses some of the detail of the other topic, but we're speaking specifically about His murder. And I want to say this morning that the impact of Jesus' murder was far-reaching, much more far-reaching than what we're going to talk about today. But I want to, for time's sake and clarity and brevity, I want to limit our study of the impact of Jesus' murder to what is contained within our text verses in Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 through 56. And as we think about Jesus' murder and the impact of His murder, I would like for us today to ponder four immediate results. Four immediate results from the murder of Jesus. We see all of them disclosed here in Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 through 56. Here they are. The first immediate result. The ceremonial law was repealed... And the way to God was opened through the murder of Jesus. Secondly, nature cried out in response to God's wrath as a result of Jesus' murder. Thirdly, this fourth immediate result, Christ conquered death and was victorious over the grave. And then the fourth and final immediate result that we'll consider this morning... Jesus' crucifixion personally affected specific people. Four immediate results from the murder of Jesus. Let's look at them individually. First of all, beginning in verse number 51, the uh, murder of Jesus had this immediate result. The ceremonial law was repealed and the way to God was opened. Now, you might say that, well, that was already the case when Christ came to the earth, but I want you to see today that it is specifically detailed as being accomplished at the murder of Jesus. Now watch, in verse number 50, the Bible says, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And so Jesus, as he said himself in John chapter number 10, he said that he would lay down his life, that no man would take it from him. So even in his murder, Jesus chose the exact moment when he would die. That's what it means when it says that he gave up the ghost, he yielded up the ghost. He chose the exact moment when he would die physically. Now watch verse number 51, and we're primarily concerned with the first part of verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. This signifies that the ceremonial law of God was now repealed, it was null and void, and it was replaced by a better testament, and that uh, better testament dealt with direct dealings with God and not having to go through all of the practices of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. Now think about the veil that is spoken of as being rent. 
the Bible says, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent. This is the veil that was in the temple that originated in the tabernacle. And if you remember God's economy, God originally met with His people in the tabernacle, and then when Solomon came along because David wanted to build God a house, God wouldn't allow David to do it, so He allowed Solomon to do it, and it was patterned after the tabernacle. Much of the, much of the detail is the same as the tabernacle. And so in the temple, there was a place referred to as the holy place, and there was a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And if you remember, that veil is described in Exodus chapter number 26, verses 31 through 33. It was a veil that was made of fine twined linen, and it was a very, very thick veil. It was not a type of a curtain that you could just take and rend and tear with your hands. It was a thick veil, and it was a veil that stood 60 feet high. Now think about the purpose of the veil. The veil separated the holy place from the most holy place, and nobody was allowed to go behind that veil into the holy of holies except the high priest, one person, the high priest, and the high priest was only permitted to do that once a year on the Day of Atonement when he would make atonement for not only his own sins, but for the sins of the people. That was the veil that was rent. Notice it says, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Having considered the veil that was rent, now let's talk about the requirements that were repealed. God is spoken of here as doing away with the ceremonial law. Now remember, do not confuse yourself. There are three types of law in the Old Testament. There was the ceremonial law, the civil law, which governed the Jews and their daily living. And then there's the moral law of God, which has never been abrogated or done away with. It is still in existence today. You and I don't fall under the civil law of the Jews. We are, and I wouldn't recommend this, but we're allowed to eat pig and hog. I say I wouldn't recommend it. I'm kidding about that. I mean, you eat what you want, right? I mean, even I like some good crispy bacon every now and then. All right? But we don't have to go by the civil law of the Jews. We don't have to to literally uh, be farmers and and plow our fields and give a tenth of our, of our, our crops to the Lord. We don't do that. We don't live under that economy anymore. And we certainly don't live under the ceremonial law of the Jews anymore. We're going to talk more about the ceremonial law in just a moment. But I want you to notice who rent the veil and how the veil was rent. Notice it says here in verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temple is rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Who did this? I'll tell you who did it. God did it. God rent the veil. And notice it was not rent from the bottom up. It was torn from the top down. This signified that God was was signifying that the ceremonial law of the Jews was done away with. You no longer had to offer sacrifices of animals that would serve as a picture or a figure or a shadow or a type of that which is to come because it was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Brother Spurgeon wrote in commenting on this particular verse here. He says, 
The annual ceremony of atonement was thus abolished. The atoning blood, which was once every year sprinkled within the veil, was now offered once for all by the great high priest, and therefore the place of the symbolical rite was broken up. No blood of bullocks or of lambs is needed now, for Jesus has entered within the veil with his own blood. Hence access to God is now permitted and is the privilege of every believer in Christ Jesus. And so at the murder of Jesus, when he is placed on that cross and suffered such physical abuse and torture that we discussed last week, as he was murdered by the Romans and the Jews, this was an immediate result. The ceremonial law was repealed and the way to God directly was opened up. God rent the temple veil in two from top to bottom. Now, God did away with the ceremonial law, and it was replaced by Christ Himself. Turn with me now, and we're going to do some a little bit more extensive reading than we normally do in the messages, but I want you to go with me to the book of Hebrews, specifically Hebrews chapter number 9, and I want you to see the correlation between what we're talking about as an immediate result of the murder of Jesus and what we see described here by Paul in the book of Hebrews, and specifically Hebrews chapter number 9, and as well, we're going to look a little bit at Hebrews chapter 10. Notice Hebrews chapter number 9, verse number 1. And stay with me, because we're going to read probably down to verse number 14 at least. Notice Hebrews 9. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Now stop, what's he talking about? He's talking about the ceremonial law. That which was observed by the Jews in the sacrifice of animal after animal as it was conducted in the tabernacle and in the temple. That first ordin- that first covenant, which had also ordinances of divine service and a, and a worldly sanctuary. Notice, he says in verse 2, For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and after the second veil the tabernacle which is called the holiest of alls. And so there you see the specific veil that was rent in twain from top to bottom mentioned by God. It is that veil that was done away with. Notice in verse 4, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the gold, the, the golden pot that had uh, manna and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, that would be into the holy place, not the holy of holies, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second, or the holy of holies, the most holy place, went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors or the sins of the people the Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest or made known while as the first tabernacle was yet standing which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. That happened with Christ. That's what we're talking about this morning. Notice verse 11, But Christ, being come a high priest 
of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Paul is describing how that Christ, as he was murdered, he literally offered up his blood on the mercy seat, just like the high priest would go in and offer that blood of sacrifice once a year on the Day of Atonement. Christ offered himself, and so the ceremonial law was not necessary. That first covenant, that first testament was done away with. It was repealed. It was abrogated. It was replaced by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The veil was rent and torn by God from top to bottom. It was done away with, and now you can see Christ as our sacrifice, and we no longer have to go through all that the Jews went through in the ceremonial law. That's good. That's a blessing. That was an immediate result of the death of Christ. Turn with me now, just one chapter over, and we'll read a couple more verses. In Hebrews chapter number 10, verses 19 through 21, and you'll notice that there's now a new veil. A new veil. Not the 60-foot high one of fine twine linen. But notice Hebrews chapter number 10, verse number 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiness. How? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say His flesh, high priest over the house of God. And so Jesus' body was torn and rent, just like that veil was rent. It signified that the ceremonial law had been repealed and the way to God was directly opened. You and I don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go to anybody. We Christ is there's one, there's one mediator between God and man and, and men, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. And so the first immediate result from the murder of Jesus, we see it mentioned here in in Matthew chapter 27, in the first part of verse 51, when the veil was rent from the top to the bottom, the ceremonial law was repealed. And the way to God was directly open. Notice the second result. We also see this in verse number 51. Nature cried out in response to God's wrath. Look at verse number 51. It says here in the last part, And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Now I'm going to tell you this morning that your faith is going to be challenged. You're going to have to really question whether or not you believe what the Bible says because I'm about to lay some supernatural events on you as recorded in the Word of God. Notice that I said that the second immediate result was that nature cried out in response to God's wrath. Not at the death of Christ, but at the murder of Christ. Notice the physical miracles that were wrought at the murder of Christ. First of all, notice he says, and the earth did quake. This literally means that there was an earthquake. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, let me ask you this. How is it possible to be lying in bed in, in you know, 10 miles, 15 miles from St. Louis, and you're, uh, you're awakened by a five-point-something 
earthquake on the Richter scale. I mean, that happened literally, what was that, 12 years ago, something like that? I mean, we thought, Darlene and I woke up, we thought it was one of the, you know, uh, cargo planes perhaps, transport planes from the base, rumbling low over our house. The house literally shook. Who thinks of an earthquake in St. Louis, Missouri, or in O'Fallon, Illinois? So, yes, there was an earthquake that took place when the Lord was murdered, when He gave up the ghost. One commentator says that historically, the earthquake was not confined to Judea, but it was felt in other countries, and many Roman writers have actually written about that earthquake. And so there was an earthquake. Notice that it says in verse 51, the rocks rent. The word rent literally means to split open. The rocks were cleaved apart. They were split open. They were torn asunder. In fact, it's reported, I've never been to Israel, but it's reported that these rocks, as they split open, they are still visible today at Mount Calvary. You know what else happened? As far as physical miracles that were wrought, it's not recorded by Matthew, but it is recorded by Luke. In Luke chapter number 23, listen to this, turn over if you like, if you're quick enough. Luke chapter 23, verses 44 and 45. Luke mentions this. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Verse 45, And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. Literally, when it should have been daylight, it was darkness. There was a complete eclipsing of the sun. We find that uh, the, this was a supernatural event that took place. John Brown, who was a Scottish theologian in the 1700s, very simply described it this way. When Jesus hung on the cross, a preternatural darkness covered all the earth. And the word preternatural means supernatural. A supernatural darkness covered all the earth. Now think about this. What would you think if right now you looked outside and it was dark like night and we had an earthquake and rocks started splitting in half? Would you not say, oh man, something's happening. This is not normal. This is a supernatural event. It was. Notice not only the miracles, the miracles that were physical miracles that were wrought, but notice that these physical miracles were a manifestation of God's wrath. A manifestation of God's wrath. Now, God's wrath is often displayed in nature. His wrath is often displayed in nature. In the whirlwind. In, in, in other descriptions. And how about this in Psalms 18 and verse number 7. In Psalms 18 and verse number 7, the Bible reads, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because He was raw. And then in Nahum chapter number 1, verses 5 and 6. Nahum 1, verses 5 and 6. The mountains quake at Him and the hills melt and the earth is burned in His presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before His indignation and who can abide in the fierceness of His anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by Him. God's wrath is often displayed in manifestations of physical miracles with nature. He brings the tsunami. He allows the whirlwind to come. 
the hurricanes out of the great seas and tempests are controlled by the hand of God. And when God is angry, I'm telling you this morning, you better watch out. When God is upset and he is, His wrath has been instigated by the actions of His own created creatures, we better watch out. That ought to be a good lesson for us as America today, and in particular Christians. Now, God's wrath is displayed in nature, but God's wrath was displayed because of the murder of His Son. Now, though the cross was Christ's purpose, God in no way approved of the way that His Son was treated. Do you understand that? Do we grasp that? I want you to turn with me to a few scriptures this morning. Let's turn to Acts chapter number 4, verses 26 through 28. Acts chapter number 4, verses 26 through 28. And I want you to think about what I'm saying this morning, that though, that though Jesus Christ was delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, He came for a particular purpose. God was not at all approving of the way that His only begotten Son was sinfully mistreated and murdered by man. Look at Acts chapter number 4, verses 26 through 28. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together. Now watch. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. This simply means that the Lord removed His hand and He allowed the sinful activities of the sin-darkened and depraved hearts of the Jews and of the Romans to do whatsoever they desired to do. Christ came for a purpose. Christ came to die for His people and to purchase our salvation. But that does not mean that God does not hold those that shamefully mistreated His Son. He does not hold them accountable. He does hold them accountable. The Bible says that as Peter spoke and preached after they were told not to speak the name of Christ, Peter said in Acts chapter number 5 and verse number 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. And then in verse number 30, he said this, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Peter is letting them know that they were guilty of the murder of Christ, and God does not take kindly to the mistreatment of His Son. And so we find the second immediate impact was that nature cried out in response to God's wrath at the mistreatment and mishandling of His only begotten Son. And then notice thirdly, notice thirdly, we see this in verses 52 and 53. Christ conquered death and was victorious over the grave. Notice back in in Matthew chapter 27, let's read verses 52 and 53. And the graves were opened and many bodies of saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after His resurrection and went into the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and appeared unto many. Now I'm going to, I'm going to test your faith this morning. you believe the Bible? Do you believe that graves were actually opened and dead people arose? You better believe it. Because the Bible says it. 
And now whether we believe it or not doesn't make it true. You know, some people say, well, the Bible says it and I believe it. That makes it true. No, the Bible says it. That makes it true. What are you going to do? Are you going to believe it or not believe it? The Bible says that this happened. Now in this, in the graves being opened, in actual dead people being brought back to life and appearing, in this we see that Christ conquered death and was victorious over the grave. That was an immediate result of the murder of Jesus. Notice, notice here that, that there is another miracle recorded here for the purpose of identifying Jesus as the Messiah. That's what we see here. Why, why were the graves opened? And why did the dead saints come forth? To identify Christ as the Messiah. To show that Christ was victorious over death and the grave. Notice, first of all, that the graves were opened. The graves were opened. Now, you and I might think of this like we think of graves today. You know, if we were to go down to a cemetery, drive down the road, see a cemetery, how are people buried today? They're buried in the ground, aren't they? Usually. That's usually the way they're buried. You think, well, so so these graves were actually dug up. And these bodies came out. Well, that would be wrong. Because that's not the way they buried people in those days. If we were to go down to Louisiana and go down to New Orleans, and Darlene and I have done this, we've toured one of the uh, cemeteries down there. They have crypts and things like that where they're buried above ground. And, you know, I could very easily see, and I don't know what happened during Hurricane Katrina, but I could very easily see if a a tornado or something ripped through there, those graves would be exposed, would they not? Well, that's what's being talking about, talked about here. Sepulchers then were most commonly made in solid rocks or in caves of rocks. And what would happen if an earthquake took place and the rocks were split or torn asunder? It would open up those graves. And that's literally what's being talked about. It would have laid open those graves as the earthquake took place and the rocks were rent apart. So the graves were opened. And then notice, the dead saints arose. Look at verse number 52 and 53 again. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of saints which slept arose. Now the word slept there, I hope that we understand from our Bible study, um, it doesn't mean that they're just sleeping a physical sleep. They're dead. Okay, they're dead. That's what the New Testament bears. uh, That's the wording and terminology that is used. They were dead. And notice, and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. And so uh, the graves were opened at the death of Christ. And then after Christ arose, the saints arose. And they literally went into the holy city of Jerusalem and appeared and made themselves known. Now why do we say that it that the graves were opened at Christ's death, but then after his death and his resurrection these bodies arose and and went into Jerusalem. Well, mainly because that's what it says. Okay, it says and came out of the graves after his resurrection. But remember also, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 20, the Bible says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits, the first fruits of them that slept. And so Christ set a pattern. He rose again from the dead and these followed suit. This was a miracle for the purpose of identifying Jesus as the Messiah. And it was also to spotlight Christ's victory over death and the grave. Do you know that if you're saved today, you don't have to fear death? 
You don't have to fear death. Now look, I know if I were to say to you, well, brother and sister, since you don't fear death, how would you feel if you got eaten by a, by a grizzly bear? There'd be a little bit of fear there, wouldn't there? I'm not talking about the manner of death, okay? I don't particularly want to be eaten by a lion or a grizzly bear. I don't particularly want to die a horrendous death, okay? I'd much rather just go to sleep and then wake up in glory, okay? And have it be painful and, and that type of thing. I'm not talking about the manner of death. We're talking about the fact that we don't have to fear death. The Bible tells us about Christ's victory over death. And, and he who has the power of death in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the Bible says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That means that he had a physical body. He was very man of man and he was very God of God. We call that the hypostatic union of Christ. And then it says that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. In verse number 15, And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We don't have to be in bondage anymore. We're all going to die. We are. We're going to die. And for the saint of God, we are promised. We are promised that after we take our last breath, we will immediately be in the presence of God. I can't work all that out by reason, but I trust it. And I believe it. Christ was victorious over death. And He conquered the grave. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55-57, through 57, you know these verses very well. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As Christ was murdered by sinful man, and He gave up the ghost, what was the immediate result? The bodies of the saints that were in those tombs and those graves, those tombs and those graves were opened, and the bodies of those saints arose, signifying that Christ, through His murder and through His death, was victorious over death and the grave. That ought to give you comfort. It ought to cheer you up today. We think about all the different maladies of the body and of the flesh that we have. You know, and we're, we're prone to worrying, are we not? We say, oh, I got this, man, what's this thing? You know, and then we're like, oh, what are I, you know, I'm going to die. You know, we, we take care of our bodies. But listen, we're in the hands of the Lord, right? We're in the hands of the Lord and we don't have to fear it. Christ was victorious over death and He conquered the grave. There's a fourth and final result. We'll spend our few remaining moments here. It's found in verses 54 through 56 of our text. His crucifixion personally affected specific people. His crucifixion personally affected specific people. It had an effect. E-F-F-E-C-T. It had an effect on specific people. God, as we've already looked at, had a specific purpose in Christ's crucifixion. And you know He had a specific person purpose in dealing with specific persons in His murder. His crucifixion and His murder personally affected specific people. Now notice, first of all, His murder personally affected specific people in that God was going to reveal Christ to depraved sinners. God was going to reveal Christ to depraved sinners. Look at verse 54. 
Now, when, we're back in Matthew 27, verse 54. Now, when the centurion... Stop there. What's the centurion? It's a soldier who was commander over 100 troops. Okay? So he was a commander over a band of soldiers. Right? So, now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, "This tr- truly, this was the Son of God. It is no mistake that these specific soldiers were there. And by the way, the soldiers were reckoned in those days like the publicans. Okay, they, they were like the, the off-scouring of the earth. Right? It was, not, it was not an honorable profession then. And remember, these are the same soldiers that mocked Christ. These are the same soldiers that mercilessly beat Christ. That, that gambled for His garments. That spit upon Him. And hit Him with the reed that they gave as they mocked Him. They humiliated Him. And they subjected Him to every inhumane process in way of punishment that you can think of. And I believe we've already adequately covered that. These are the same soldiers. Now they see Christ give up the ghost and die. And they see the earthquake and the graves open and the sun darken. And just as I mentioned a few moments ago, if that happened right now, what would your reaction be? Man, I, I'm going to hide under the chair. Okay, I, I'm afraid. They saw this. And they were afraid. And you know what they said? Truly. Truly, this was not a son of a God. This was the Son of God. In Luke chapter 23, in verse 47, Luke gives this take on it. In Luke chapter 23, in verse number 47, Luke writes, Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. This was a man who was innocent of all wrongdoing. The centurion was touched. The soldiers and those that were with him, according to Matthew 27, they were touched, they feared greatly in their hearts, and at least the centurion glorified God and declared that Christ was righteous. Now, you ask me, well, brother, do you think that the centurion was saved and the other soldiers were saved? I don't think so. But I know that they glorified God. And they confess that Christ is who He said He was. And you know there's coming a day when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. Even those that hate the Lord Jesus Christ, that day is coming when they're going to meet Christ and they're going to bow the knee and they're going to confess that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Doesn't mean they're saved. But God had a purpose in this. He was effecting this. And you know what? It's interesting to note. Because it wasn't just the centurion. Now here in, in Matthew's account, we read just about the centurion and the other soldiers. But how about this? How about this in Luke giving us another view on it? In Luke chapter 23, verse number 48. In Luke chapter 23 and verse number 48, the Bible says, And all the people that came together to that site, what site? Christ being murdered and mercilessly humiliated and beaten. All the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts. Smote their breasts in return. Now don't misread this. I don't think that here it's referring to them smiting their breasts in victory. I think this is kind of what uh, Judas experienced. When Judas realized that he had betrayed innocent blood, 
He tried to go back and give the money back. Judas didn't experience evangelical repentance. He experienced legal repentance. He was troubled at what he had done and the impact that that would have on him. I believe this is what happened with these people. God opened their sight to see that, you know what, they were condemned. They They had killed an innocent person. They were complicit in what took place. They were the ones that were there saying, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Release unto us this malefactor by the name of Barabbas and kill innocent Christ! And now they begin to realize what they had done. That was an immediate result of the murder of Jesus. Notice, secondly, we're talking here about the fact that the Murder and crucifixion personally affected specific people. Not only did it, did it have the purpose of revealing Christ to depraved sinners, but it was for the purpose of rescuing the chosen from eternal death. Now, other than Christ, on the day of His crucifixion, who is the other person that you think of as He hung there on that cross? You think of that thief. That thief. That one that railed on him and mocked him. Both malefactors, both criminals and thieves did that. But at some point, God got a hold of one of them. And obviously, he was a vessel of mercy chosen by the Lord. And notice that the Bible says that immediately, immediately, he was delivered from eternal death. Nothing could be done to deliver him from this impending physical death. But watch. Turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, and specifically, we're going to read uh, verses 39 through 43. Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. This was an immediate result. That this man who had spent his entire life shaming the name of God and living in defiance to God and His Word was immediately rescued on the cross. He couldn't take the Lord's Supper. He couldn't be baptized. He couldn't do any good works. And yet He was saved. Christ said, You're You're going to be with Me today in paradise. The murder of Christ was for the purpose of affecting specific people and it affected this, this thief specifically. He was delivered from eternal death into the presence of the living God. And then lastly, notice verses 55 and 56. Verses 55 and 56. We're talking about the immediate results of the murder of Christ. His murder and crucifixion personally affected specific people. Notice notice that it was uh, his, his death on the uh, cross and his murder. It was to rally the most unlikely believers to dedicated service to rally the most unlikely believers to dedicated service. Now, if I were to if I were to, if I if we weren't to read verses 55 and 56 of Matthew 27, and if I were to say to you now Christ is crucified and he had 12 apostles. One of them we know was a reprobate and he was a devil from the beginning. 
and so there's 11, right? Um, who would you say would be with Christ at the cross? Would you not say, well, it'd be, it'd be Peter, James, and John? And in fact, certainly it'd be Peter, because Peter was bold enough to say to the Lord, though all men would forsake you, I will never forsake you. By the way, so said they all. Do you know the only one that appears to have really lived up to that is John? Because John was present at the cross. We know that. We understand that. Because the Lord referenced John when he was crucified and hanging on the cross. Let me ask you this. Where was Peter? Where were the other disciples? Wouldn't you think they'd be the most likely to be dedicated and serving the Lord to the end? But it isn't the case. Look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 55 and 56. Then many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto Him, among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joses, and the mother of Zebedee's children. Wait a minute. Who is it that's there? It's the faithful women. We can never underestimate the role and value of women in the service of God. Shame on us when we want to take some type of view of women as though they're less inferior than they're inferior and less useful than men simply because they're women. Oh, beloved, who's there at the cross with Christ? Notice their, their courage. Only John was recorded as being present at the cross. And I know the Bible here says that they followed Jesus. Uh, it says that. Uh, they were beholding Him afar off. I believe what that means is that they were not able to get up close because of the, the people that were there and the, the throng of people and the soldiers, but they were as close as they could get. And they, they were there. They were courageous when others were not willing to be there for Christ. They stood up for Christ. And they were there. Not only were they courageous, but they were compassionate. When everyone else was mocking Christ, they were ministering. To Christ, The Bible says, And many women were there, beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto Him. They were praying for the Son of God as He was murdered by the hands of wicked Jews and Romans. Joseph Benson writes this, and we'll close with this quote. Joseph Benson writes this, It is greatly to the honor of these excellent women that they thus manifested more courage and attachment to their Lord and Master than even the apostles themselves, who notwithstanding that they had promised to die with Him rather than desert Him, had forsaken Him and fled. But oh, who can describe the feelings of these pious females while they attended Jesus in these last scenes of His sufferings? What words can express or heart conceive the depth of sorrow, compassion, anxiety, and despondency which must have been excited in their breasts by what their eyes saw and their ears heard during these mournful and awful hours. And yet they stood by Christ. You know that tells us that the murder of Jesus opened up service for those that would seem to be most unlikely. Guys like Bunyan. Guys like Newton. Guys that would not be ever thought of to be servants of the Lord or do anything for the cause of Christ. You know what? People like you and me. People who had never thought to be the possession of Christ and yet have been saved by the grace of the Lord, purchased by His murder and His death, and given the ability to be dedicated servants unto Him. You know, that ought to motivate us. Seeing these women that served Christ and stood by Him, it ought to motivate us to be 
what they were and to do what they did. Well, I hope that this series on the murder of Jesus has drawn you closer to the Lord. I hope that it hasn't been just for the purpose of accumulating a bunch of knowledge, but that you have a better appreciation for what our Lord went through on our behalf, the suffering that He went through. The Bible tells us, For Christ also has suffered once, hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. He had a purpose in His death. He had a purpose in His suffering. Christ was murdered. But thanks be to God, His murder had a purpose. We looked at four immediate results from the murder of Jesus. The ceremonial law was repealed and the way to God was directly opened. Nature cried out in response to God's wrath over the mistreatment of His Son. Christ conquered death and was victorious over the grave. And His murder and crucifixion personally affected specific people. I pray that you are one of those people. Let's pray.